welcome to the Chinese Revolutions podcast about how China came to be the way it is today. We're looking at modern Chinese history, starting from about 1839, following revolutionary movements,、uh, going up to the present day. It's going to take us a while.、Um, I am Nathan Bennett, your host. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is kind of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Uh, this episode,、uh, we're going to be talking about revolutionary forerunners in Chinese history. So,、uh, the beginning announcements: the main podcast will always be free. I'm looking to get up to a hundred paid subscribers so that I can start producing supplementary episodes, biographies of key people, technology important in various of the revolutions,、uh, special interest topics. Uh, you'll hear more about that at the end of the episode.、Uh, also, join my Substack for greater connection with the podcast. You'll get behind-the-scenes stories, stories from my time in China.、Um, that's also another way to support the podcast. I'm working on the ways to、I'm、working on the extra special goodies that you're supposed to give. This is my first time running. A monetized podcast, anyway. So let's get so more about that at the end. Let's get into it.、Uh, we're going to go back into history and look at some of the precursors to the revolutions that we're going to be covering in greater detail. You know, it's not like somebody woke up one day and decided to throw a nice revolution and the whole nation came. There are, in fact, precedents in Chinese history for revolution. I've been using Wikipedia for establishing basic facts like dates and things.、Uh, as I go over the Wikipedia account, I'm finding that you know all the things that I remember from AP World History in high school is just insufficient.、Uh, so in this episode, please bear with me as I play with some general ideas. If you get a helpful general notion of how it's going,、uh, then we're good.、Uh, if you're a professor in Chinese history. Uh, if I'm close enough, please work with me and call it good enough.、Um, okay. Anyway, here we go. So、uh, there's this idea call,、uh, called the Mandate of Heaven in China scholarship.、Uh, we're just going to call it political legitimacy. In our previous episode,、uh, we talked about how Revolution happens when a government basically can't keep order anymore. They can't keep power.、Uh, well, the mandate of heaven passes to a new regime when the emperor becomes a political football. Well, we'll get to that in one of these revolutions here. The first revolution, so to speak, that we're going to look at is Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of China. He was the ruler of the state of Qin in. Two forty-seven to two twenty-one B.C., and that's about twenty-five years. He was the emperor of China、uh, for about eleven years, two twenty-one to two ten B.C.、Uh, after him was the Han Dynasty.、Uh, so the he followed the legalism school of thought.、Uh, with him was the burning of books and burying of scholars. So maybe not not quite as wide as the anti Qin Shi Huang scholars would like to have you believe, but 
he was notorious for stamping out anything that didn't go with his philosophy. Uh, he put an end to the hundred schools of thought of the warring states period. He is famous for being the one to uh, build the Great Wall, uh, which actually doesn't have dead bodies buried in it. That's architecturally very, very unstable because you know, you know you want consistent materials uh, when you're building a wall. And dead bodies decompose, and that'll make your wall fall right apart. Uh, okay, other public works he did... Uh, he created a system of unified weights and measures. He built a national road system. He unified the Chinese writing system. So you can see some parallels with the French Revolution, a reduction in regional identities, the regularization of weights and measures, and the overhaul of the education system. So when there's a political change, there's very often a social change. Uh, when you have, like France, uh, different regions used to have very strong identities. Then in the revolution, uh, Paris was the heart of the political thing. And, you know, that's where Napoleon ruled from. And that's where succeeding governments had their seat of power um, away from a decent, away from stronger regional areas. Like if you ever look up the history of Burgundy, the, the place, that used to be quite a thing. I've got a book on Amazon. I've got to read about that. Anyway, the coming of Buddhism is another sort of revolution. In AP World History in high school, I learned about Neo-Confucianism as an attempt to synthesize Buddhism and Confucianism. I'm just going to say that appears not to be the case. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, uh, take that you know, take sweeping generalizations with a grain of salt. Um, not too much salt if you struggle if struggle with high sodium. Anyway, in the first century A.D., roughly when Christianity was getting started up, uh, actually, uh, on the other side of the Eurasian landmass, uh, Buddhism came to China. It challenged the, to that point, traditional structure of Chinese society. Uh, during the Tang Dynasty, the Emperor Wu Zong who ruled from 814 to 846, contemporary of the Byzantines, by the way, uh, and early Islam, he repressed Buddhism as un-Chinese. So, you know, you can have uh, things that come into China and are there for some centuries, and they get repressed by a later ruler. For our purposes, uh, the importation of a new religion is going to shake things up, rearrange the understanding of how society works. Like when we get to the Taiping Rebellion, which will actually be uh, much, much sooner uh, than uh, some of the... That's actually one of the first revolutions that we we're going to get to. Um, it came from a weird, uh, twisted cult version of Christianity. Um, you know, so... You know, so when the Chinese government is worried about religious movements, there are very, very solid historical reasons for them to be concerned about new religious movements. And new religious movements doesn't just mean a religious movement that is new. It is an anthropological term for, uh, like, weird, scary cults that get started in 
you know, like, like the, the best is they're just kind of weird and, you know, live off in a compound somewhere and they're fun to laugh at. But, uh, that, that's the best case scenario. So the, the, also keep in mind the inheritance of past revolutions conflicts with the inheritance of other revolutions down the years. Uh, that ideological sofa you left in the living room clashes with the ideological recliner that the next people bring in. So yeah, there's, like, so this is one of the things we're going to see when we get to the Communist Party of China. They inherit a lot from the nationalists uh, from before, but also all of the other Chinese nationalist efforts. Uh, they put their own spin on the meaning of the Taiping Rebellion, other things. Let's look at uh, the, the thing that bifurcated the the rule of the Han Dynasty, the usurpation of Wang Mang, from 9 to 23 AD. It's roughly comparable to the Interregnum or Commonwealth period in English history with Oliver Cromwell and the Rump Parliament of 1649 to 1660. Um, the ruling dynasty slipped gears, some idealists found themselves in charge, tried some reforms, but the dynasty was reformed. Restored, restored. You know, so the, the Stuarts had ruled for, there was James I, then there was Charles I, Charles I got the axe, and Cromwell found himself in charge, and then Cromwell died, uh, Charles II was brought back, then his son James the, no, brother James? James II, then James II was kicked out, and anyway, um, there were a lot of uh, a lot of tries to implement the, a constitution and push through certain religious programs in the interregnum. So you you see similar things in the usurpation of Wang Mang, uh, though the the uh, he was trying some different things with interesting key-like looking coinage. Uh, Wang Mang is an interesting character. Uh, the, so even though the Stuarts in the uh, British uh, interregnum period, even though the Stuarts were eventually overthrown, monarchy remained. Though the Han were eventually overthrown, the imperial system in China sustained for many, many more centuries. Okay, uh, let's look at the phenomenon of dynastic succession. Oh, by the way, the uh, how I know a lot about the British uh, interregnum period, that's, again, the Revolutions podcast by Mike Duncan. Go over there, check it out. It's a really great podcast. Let them know I sent you. Um, so dynastic succession... Uh, the dynasty loses the ability to keep things going. Someone else takes over. Um, now, make no mistake. Oh, okay. This is this is a great great line here. Uh, make, okay, each dynasty did things differently. It's not like it was one long sleepy succession of dreamy emperors. Uh, in America and Europe, we just don't know anything about it. That's haha, that's one of my own. Tee-hee, tee-hee. Okay, great. Um, as far as I can tell, uh, dynastic succession meant ref meant a refreshing in initiative. Um, 
revolutions in policy. Like, okay, I'm going back to AP world history here. The Tang Dynasty expanded. The Song the Song Dynasty consolidated. Uh, it, you know that that that's close enough to be good enough. Um, okay, so let's let's use another world history parallel. Okay, consider the First French Republic, then the Napoleonic Empire, the Bourbon Restoration, the July Monarchy, the Second Republic, the Second Empire under Napoleon III, the Third Republic, Fourth Republic, Fifth Republic. Okay, the Third, Fourth, and Fifth Republic, uh, somewhere in there World War II happened. There's there's contention between different royal houses, there were Bonapartists, then there's Republicans... Okay, but it's all France. You you can see consistent development from one thing to the other. So it's similar in Chinese dynastic history. They'll favor certain policies, they'll shake things up in this way or that, and some Chinese dynasties aren't even Han, like the, the Mongol Yuan dynasty and the Manchu Qing dynasty. Uh, in Chinese history, there are cycles of division and then ultimate reunification. So, in one of, in I think the first episode, I I talked about the one China eventually policy. Uh, you know, history established that China pretty much always gets the band back together. So, if you look at the boundaries of European countries, modern borders pretty much were set after World War II. Uh, it's like, yeah, there, there's no reunification under some restored Roman Empire or anything like that. It's just, that's how it is. Okay, so, like, let's, let's go through a few periods of Chinese history. Okay, the Three Kingdoms period. Uh, I forget exactly what the kingdoms were, but that is historically recognized as, okay, like, that's a period of Chinese history but there were three separate states ruled by separate kings or sovereigns. Uh, Eastern Jin and 16 kingdoms. So I mean, maybe there was one larger thing, and then I don't know if 16 is like smaller warlords. Northern and Southern dynasties, five dynasties and 10 kingdoms. Liao, Song, and Jin dynasties. So I'm not sure how much these overlapped. Okay, then... Here's where I am more clear, okay, the Ming Dynasty and the Northern Yuan. So after the Ming Dynasty gets started, uh, when the Mongols get booted from China, the, the Yuan Dynasty is still ruling in the north. Uh, uh, Mongols are still quite proud of their, uh, of Chinggis Khan. Uh, that's, that's how you checked that with a Mongolian friend once, actually. That's how you say good old Genghis's name in the real Mongolian, Chinggis Khan. Okay, anyway. The Qing Dynasty and the Southern Ming. It took some time for the Qing to... Uh, I've actually been to the place in Jingshan Park in Beijing where the last Ming emperor hanged himself. Uh, so... You know, for a while there was the Qing, and then there were some Ming holdouts. Um, so you know, you had two separate regimes running at the same time. And then, if you consider the warlord era before the uh, 
final establishment of the People's Republic of China, okay, you, you had these separate parts of China ruled by separate governors with their own separate armies. You know, there was one guy who was some sort of Christian, and he would baptize his armies with blasts from a fire hose. Okay, I guess if that works. Uh, now, of course, okay, like like today, the People's Republic has pretty much won. Like that's settled and done. Like you know, even Chiang Kai Shek, after a while, had to move on and say, "Yeah, I'm just gonna do have to do with Taiwan uh, the best I can and uh, stop trying to go back to the mainland." Uh, and of course, his successors did went you know even further in that direction. You know, so Taiwan is, in view of Chinese history, one of those holdouts. So there clearly is a one China, but you know, like it's you know, so some barbarians have stepped in and helped preserve, uh, you know, the separate identity of Taiwan as being separate from the current government in Beijing. So this is it's totally a situation in line with other things that have happened in Chinese history. I'd give the People's Republic another hundred years to totally lock it in as another dynasty, but they're showing some pretty serious longevity so far. That's one of the benefits of an adopt of a an organization that has succession by adoption. The next one is the the next ruler is the one who believes the same thing that the previous ruler did, rather than the previous ruler's son you know somebody can have totally worthless children yet have you know really wonderful subordinates uh okay so another another example the yellow turban revolt from 184 to 205 AD this is at the end of the han dynasty a weird religious cult took off rebelling against the corruption in the imperial court some guy gets an apparition from a Taoist sage, then on the basis of his widespread popular support, he decides to have a go at seizing the realm. Uh, this actually makes an appearance in the Romance of the Three Kingdoms classic novel. The Yellow Turban Revolt provides the, the context for the three brothers, Liu Bei, Guan Yu, and Zhang Fei, to get together. For the, you know, in the exposition, the Yellow Turbans are the bad guys, and they're the ones who, like who the who our heroes uh, show their stuff on, and then the rest of the story happens. So in in Chinese history, things like this are the opportunistic affection infections that strike as the political immune system falls apart. You see stuff like this toward the end of a dynasty. We're going to cover we're going to cover the Taiping Rebellion closer to the end of the Qing dynasty in much more detail. But here's here's the critical thing. Uh, when the emperor becomes something to protect, rather than the guy who's actually making strategic decisions, you know, he's not the fulcrum on which everything turns, uh, power in his own right, source of authority and prestige for lower officials, then you're you're past the point of no return. When, you know, like, okay, so a ruler can have a moment of weakness and you you have your powerful subordinate to keep you in in place like yeah that's it's true you know nobody's invincible you have your essential supporters 
But once you become just a political football, your regime is is on the clock. It's uh, winding down. It's on its way out. The uh, yeah, I'm trying trying to think of uh, hilarious but nonsensical. Anyway, so you know, so today's revolution inherits a lot from the furniture from the last revolution. You see a definite inheritance, revolution by revolution. So it seems in history that there is very clearly one unified China, and China keeps poking through any time there's disruption. The warlords in the warlord era weren't starting something new, they're just protecting their own slice of the pie, um, and China uh, sustains uh, the introduction of new ideas and religions does shake things up. It's one possible hinge on which a revolution might turn. Uh, and then just one other historical point. China's boundaries fluctuate through history, but China continues for like ever. So what should China's boundaries be? What should its borders be? That is a question that I kick to history. It's like, what can you fight for and keep? That that's that's the answer. It's not a pretty answer, but that's that's it as far as I'm concerned. Um, this is in line with what I said, I believe, in the first episode. So to close out, uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, I use the platform BuyMeACoffee.com. So if you'd like to support to uh, this podcast's account, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. C as in Chinese, R as in revolution podcast. So buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. And then the substack is chineserevolutions.substack.com. I also need to make sure to mention the podcast email address, Chinese revolutions at gmail.com. Please email me. I'd love to hear from you. And that's it for this episode, and I look forward to seeing you on the next one. Mm-hmm.